Well, amen. Good morning. Welcome everybody to the Grove. If this is your first time here or first time back in a while, we are so glad to have you with us. My name is Stephen and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are wrapping up a series that we've been talking about all August called Called. And what we have been talking about in this series is simply what it means to be called because we think that there's a bit of a misconception in Christianity about the way that God calls people. I think we oftentimes exclusively think of a calling, the way that God calls us, as this moment in our lives or in some of our lives that the clouds part, God's voice speaks, a dove descends, and we've been given, kind of like the Blues Brothers, like this clear mission to like do some specific thing in the world. And for many of us, we struggle with this idea because we don't always have the clarity around, well, what is it exactly that God has called me to do? We spend time looking for our purpose, our calling, our life's work, our mission. We use all of these things to describe this idea that kind of we're searching for this one specific thing that we're supposed to be doing on earth. And if we can't find that, or until we find that, Our life is absence of meaning and significance and purpose. And as we look through scripture, there are definitely moments where people have these kind of miraculous callings from God that set them off on a course. But really, we believe that everybody has a calling from God. And this is the definition we've been using to kind of reclaim and unpack this idea of calling. And it's an invitation to participate in God's redemptive and creative work in the world. Now, this is not a new mission that God has started, you know, in the last couple hundred years. This is something that began in the opening pages of Scripture in Genesis. God invites human partners to join him in the work of creating and redeeming the world, and we think that that is still what's happening. And so we believe that all of us have an invitation to play in the work that God is doing in the world. And so really, the conversation that we've been having for the last couple of weeks is, well, what does it look like? to learn how to listen to God's calling in our life? What does it look like to learn how to hear and then accept this invitation? And it's tricky, it's challenging, because there's not always clarity. It would be nice if you know, God sends you an email and it's like, Stephen, this is what I want you to do for the next 40 years of your life. Focus on this and only this. That type of clarity would be really easy. Oftentimes, we experience this invitation in seasons, whether it's as parents and we're kind of charged with raising these children to the best of our ability as long as they're in our home, as long as they're willing to listen to the influence that we have over their lives. through It might be a moment in time. It might be through a relationship. There are all sorts of ways that we can experience God's invitation to participate in his work. And so what we thought would be helpful and what we've done the last couple of weeks is look at stories in Scripture of ways that other people have wrestled with, experienced, accepted this invitation to participate in God's work, and we'll do so again this morning. Um, And we're going to look at the story of a man named Saul. But before we jump into Saul's story, uh, I promised you last week that I would tell you my call story. So believe it or not, not everybody wakes up and wants to be a minister when they grow up. Some people might. I did not. I woke up, and one day I thought, I should be a lawyer. I think that I'd be pretty good at that. That's a tax bracket that I would like to be in. You know, I can argue a little bit and negotiate, so maybe I should be a lawyer. And so in college, I was pursuing kind of being a lawyer, getting ready to apply to law schools. 
Well, a little bit of background before I kind of jump into this moment that happened to me when I was 19. Uh, I had grown up in church. Both of my parents' church is a big priority to them. And so really, if the doors of the church were open, we were there. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that when I started college, I had gone to more church than pretty much everybody else that I knew. So if there was like a tally mark next to my name of church attendance, I was way in the lead. So as you could understand, I was deserving of a little time off. I had accrued some extra credit that I could catch up on later. So I was like, all right, college, no church, let me max out my college experience. And so I fully leveraged the lack of parental supervision in my life for the first kind of year and a half of my college experience. I was enjoying all of the newfound freedoms, no curfew, and all of the things that you get to do when nobody's telling you what to do or when to be home. Now, if some of you are like, what does he mean? Ask somebody after service. But that's as far as I'll go this morning. But I was really, like really enjoying my college experience. And I was driving back to Texas A&M to start my second semester of my sophomore year. My car was loaded down with all of my stuff, kind of getting ready to move back in to my apartment that I'd kind of taken the Christmas break from. I'm driving down, it's kind of raining and misting, and I'm south of Waco on I-35. I come around a turn a little too fast. My car begins to shift in hydroplane, and so I kind of steer and overcorrect. And as I steer, I come into the guardrail on my right. And I bounce off that guardrail, and of course, when you hit a guardrail, you tend to steer away from that guardrail that you just run into. And so I overcorrect the other way and come into the other guardrail and it rips the front left wheel, the driver's side wheel off the car and launches my car into a roll. So I'm in my vehicle, my Ford Explorer, and I'm rolling down I-35. And I remember as it happens, I just instinctively, without thinking about it, I just begin praying in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I, It wasn't like a conscious choice. It just started to happen. And as my car is rolling, apparently I had like braced myself against the back of the seat. Airbag deploys, doesn't touch me. And I come to rest on my left shoulder with my head, my roof, facing traffic behind me. I climb out of the passenger side window. I climb out, push myself up. And literally from here to the second row is an 18-wheeler. And the guy jumps out and he runs to me and he says, thank God I saw you. And so I'm sitting there in this moment. My stuff has been thrown, scattered down I-35. My car is like totally caved in where the driver's like seat is. I don't know how I've managed to survive this wreck, much less escape totally unharmed. Like not a scratch on my body. So as you can imagine... This gives me an opportunity to begin to reflect on the last 18 months of choices and decisions that I've been making in my life, all of the freedom that I've enjoyed in college. And so I come to the conclusion that, all right, well, when I get back to school, Sunday morning, I'm going to be in church. I'm going to kind of get back and get right with God. And so there was a Methodist church, you know, two blocks around the corner from my apartment in College Station. And so I walk into the church that first morning. I sit down on the back row. Service starts, and, and I begin to look around and notice, huh, I am the only white person in this entire church. It was an all-African-American Methodist church. And I was like, 
oh, this is pretty cool. Like, I kind of like the music. You know, I don't have great rhythm, but, you know, for a white boy, I kind of got a little rhythm. And I'm like, I, I kind of dig this. And so I came back the next Sunday. But, you know, it was like that typical, like, I'm, I'm not going to commit yet. It's still early. You know, I was the last one in, the first one out, sat on the back row. You know, no indictment of anybody on the back row. But this was like, if anything happens, I can bolt and nobody's going to catch me. And so I started to come back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And then probably a couple of months in, there was this service. They were doing the, kind of this special prayer service that morning. And kind of growing up, my dad's Methodist, my mom's Pentecostal. And so this church was kind of this unique kind of, kind of combination of both of these two forms of faith that I'd grown up with. And, and so because of kind of the diversity of religious experiences that I had growing up, especially in the Pentecostal church, there's not much that can happen in a worship service that like gets my attention or scares me. You know, barring like snakes and fire, I've kind of seen it all. And so I was really comfortable with all of the different things that could potentially, except for that, potentially, yes, Lord, happen in a worship service. And so this morning, there's this particular prayer service and all of the church gets up and they're kind of gathered around the front area of the church here. And there's a woman there who's kind of leading this prayer service. And she's kind of laying hands on people and kind of prophesying over their lives. So talking about marriages that will be healed and cancers that will be cured and different things that are happening. You know, speaking with some pretty profound details about some of the, some of the people that are you know, there in that morning and some of the details of their life. And so, you know, if you had never experienced anything like this, you're kind of like, you know, it has your attention. But for me, this was like every other Sunday. So I'm in the back, non-committal, watching the church gather around the front. And I'm like happy for them. I'm like, this is great. No big deal. And then there's this, it's the closest I can describe is this out-of-body experience. I stand up. I notice myself stand up, but it doesn't feel like I've made the conscious choice to stand up. And I begin to walk down the aisle towards the congregation that had gathered at the front of the church. I begin to ask myself, Stephen, where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you walking down? I get to the back and I think, oh, you're just going to go join everybody else, a show of solidarity. That's good for you. Like, and then as I get to the back of the congregation, I begin to walk through the crowd of people, up the steps of the altar area, and onto the platform as you see me stand right now. And as I get up there, this woman meets me there. And she is eight inches away from my face. And she looks at me and she says, I was wondering when you were going to come up here. Hand on the forehead and prophesize my entire call to ministry. That I'm going to preach and that I'm going to be a pastor and I'm going to lead and shepherd and guide people. And meanwhile, I thought I was going to law school. And so this is like a total, total shell shock for me. And so after the service is over, I'm a mess and hysterical and you know I'm crying and I was a really emotional kid so sometimes I cry a lot and so I'm like crying trying to get it all together and the pastor comes alongside of me and he's like hey maybe we should maybe we should go to lunch and that was kind of the first step in my call and my call story and, and for a long time that was all I told because I felt like well that was my call I had this kind of unique you know, dove descends, sunlight parting through the clouds moment with God. But the more that I've reflected on it and the more that we've kind of been working through this series, the more that I realized that that wasn't my call. That was just the start of my call story. 
because that was 19 years ago. And for the last 19 years, I've still been struggling to understand what it means to live into this call, to accept this invitation, to continue to participate in the work that God is doing in the world. And there have been times where it's been really clear what I should do. I signed up and enrolled in seminary. I started at SMU. And a year and a half in, I started to become a little unsure if this was actually the right way to live into my calling. I began to doubt myself and my abilities. I was a little inexperienced and uncertain. And I became kind of disenchanted with the whole kind of ordination ministry process. And so like I shared last week, I dropped out of seminary. So I was a seminary dropout for seven years. But I knew that God had called me to join him in the work that he was doing. And so I stayed in ministry, just not ordained ministry. And so I began to, to serve at Highland Park Methodist as a youth pastor, and then later in their contemporary worship service, all the while still wrestling with and trying to understand what it meant for me to accept this invitation to live into the work that God was doing. And like I shared last week, eventually it culminated in a moment where a mentor kind of called me into his office and he said, listen, I don't really know how you've gotten to this place in your journey, but if you don't go back to school and finish your seminary degree and get ordained, you're, you're really wasting your calling. You're wasting this opportunity to do the work that God's called you to do. And that was kind of another shift in my story. And it began this moment of like, recommitting to trusting God in this invitation that God was extending to me. And so the prayer was like, okay, God, I don't really know what the way forward looks like. I'm going to let go of kind of my ability to try to know everything, to be able to see all the steps that I'm going to take. And it's going to require me to just kind of walk by faith. And so the prayer that I prayed and kind of the deal that I felt like God and I made, whether he agreed to his end of it or not, was, all right, God, if you open the doors, I'll walk through them. And sure enough, that's what happened. I was able to get the last seat in the last spot, you know, in seminary when they had already closed registration. And, you know, because I took seven years off, they're like, well, none of your credits are going to count. And so you've got to start over in this new degree program because I guess theology has changed, you know, over the last seven years. You know, it's like we go 2,000 years and it's the same story. But if I, you go seven years, they're not going to give you credit for it. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But... They weren't going to give me credit for it, so I was going to have to start all the way over. And I had had a year and a half, and so I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to figure this out? And then I wrote this kind of impassioned plea to the dean, and you know, in the last second, they accepted kind of my request to not only grant my previous coursework, but allow me to do a shorter program than seven years ago they had designed. And so all of this just allowed me to accelerate my seminary experience, and then I kind of got like this special permission to kind of go before the board of ordained ministry quicker than most people do. And so all in all, I mean, it, it shaved probably close to three years off of what is already a long and arduous kind of seminary and ordination experience. And then out of the blue, the opportunity to begin to start to wrestle with what does it look like to start a new campus in North Dallas? And, and I'm still kind of struggling to kind of listen to God's voice and discern the way that God is calling me to join him in the work that he's doing. And I tell you all this to say that like, it's not a one-time moment where you have all the clarity you need, but there are obstacles to hearing God's voice. It is a daily process of discerning and of listening and of trying to walk by faith. And so really quickly, 
I want to kind of talk us through some of like the three most common obstacles that we experience in our life when we're learning to listen to God's story. This has definitely been true for me. I've seen these time and time again in my story. And I'm going to kind of walk you through the ways these show up in the story of Samuel. Now, the little bit of background context on Samuel. Samuel was kind of chosen to be the first king of Israel. Israel had previously kind of been this unique nation. Saul, thank you. What did I say? Samuel, yeah. It's, it, this is in the book of Samuel. Samuel's a character. Thanks. Sometimes we get by with a little help from our friends. So, Saul, King, of, King Saul. That's right, S-A-U-L, Saul. See, I'm still struggling to learn how to do this. I mean, it doesn't... But Saul also struggled to learn how to do this because Saul had no plans to be king because there was never going to be a king of Israel. They were going to be this unique kind of nation that was led by God. Well, over time, the people grew tired and weary of being different than all the other nations. And they're like, we want our own king like all the other nations have. It's like, oh, they got a, you know, a new kitchen. I want a new kitchen. Well, they looked over at all the other nations. and They're like, they have kings. We want a king. So finally, God relents and says, all right, Samuel, you are going to appoint this person to be king. And this person's name is Saul. And so Saul is like walking through a village one day and Samuel's like, hey, you, come here. You're going to be the king of Israel. And, you know, Saul's surprised and caught off guard because there had never been a king of Israel. You know, what does it mean to be a king? What and so it goes through this whole, this begins this whole journey of Saul trying to not navigate like this invitation to join what God is trying to do through the people of Israel. Now, as Saul is navigating this story and learning how to live into this calling that's been placed on his life, he runs up against what I think are the three most common obstacles to hearing God's voice. And it's three that we wrestle with today. The first one is inexperience. And this is how kind of Saul's inexperience with this calling shows up and manifests in his life. So a little context to this particular moment, this little kind of vignette that we're going to look at. Uh, what typically the way that it works, because the people of Israel are a nation who are aligned with and follow God, the way that God sends them into battle is they have to kind of give a sacrifice to invite God's kind of participation, kind of to lend the aid to their army as they challenge all of the other nations for you know global supremacy or whatever's going on. So they have to do these sacrifices according to certain codes. Well, it's really important that kind of the head priest or kind of the religious leader of the time is the one who presides over these kind of moments of, offer, of sacrifice and offering. It's no different than the way that we kind of preside over communion or baptism, same idea. Well, Saul and his army are out there on the field getting ready to do battle with this opposing army. And He's waiting on Samuel to show up to do the offering. This would be like if y'all showed up to church for communion and Allie and I weren't present. And you're like, well, how long are we going to wait before we just kind of go home? And this is what happens with Saul. He waits and he waits and he waits and Samuel still doesn't show up. And so this is kind of where we find ourselves in the story. So it says, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops were with him, quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come, and Saul's men began to scatter. So, as you would, potentially, if you're the leader, you're like, uh-oh, 
We've got dissension amongst the ranks. Like, I've got to do something to keep everybody together. Otherwise, we're going to lose this war. So he says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Shouldn't have done that. Wasn't his role, but he took matters into his own hands. This is a little bit of the inexperience. It's like, well, he doesn't know where the limits are. He's struggling to understand, God, what does it mean to live into your call? And so he's like, well, I mean, this is all going to fall apart if I don't do something. And so he just goes ahead and he does it. And then it goes on. It says, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Well, this was not the greeting that Saul expected. So Samuel says, well, what have you done? And Saul, in his own defense, as you can understand, replies. And he says, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor. And this is interesting the way that he phrases it. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Listen, I had to do this because you weren't here. And then this is what Samuel tells him. This is kind of this first obstacle, this inexperience. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not listened and kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. You've done a foolish thing. One of the challenges that we face is we don't always know what it means to live into these invitations that God extends to us. God, how far is too far? How little is too little? Where are the boundaries? God, when am I supposed to wait and trust you? When am I supposed to take matters into my own hands? This inexperience and unknowing is a reality when we're trying to navigate God's calling on our life. That's just something that as pastors we face all the time. God, when do we wait so that it's clear and obvious to us that you're at work? And when do we press forward, moving forward in faith, trusting that you will show up? Like, how do we determine the balance of these things? This is a daily struggle, and it's a struggle for Saul as well. That's the first of some of the challenges that we face is this inexperience of not knowing how to live into the calling that's been extended to us. The second one that we run into is pride. And this is what happens again to Saul. Another battle, another context. So this is a couple chapters later in the story of Saul. Saul has his army here, and Samuel says, listen, Saul, you're going to go and you're going to attack the Amalekites. But there's important instruction with this. You're not going to kind of take any kind of the bounty, any of the loot. You're not going to ransack the place. Everything is, should be wiped off. Like all the people, all the livestock, don't save or keep anything for yourself. These are the instructions that Saul gets from God through Samuel. So here's what we see, Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, listen, now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. This is the instruction. It's really clear. Attack and destroy everything, totally, fully, completely. Now, Saul does this. Samuel gets word that he doesn't, Saul hasn't followed the instructions. So Samuel shows up to try to address Saul again. When Samuel comes to Saul, Saul said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But then Samuel says, Well, what then is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle that I hear? Remember, the instructions were to wipe out everything. But Saul knows better. Saul is starting to be consumed with his own sense of knowledge, intelligence, ability, his sense of pride that 
He knows better than Samuel, and he knows better than God because he can see the bigger picture happening. And so Saul responds to Samuel's kind of question about, well, why do I hear sheep and cattle in the background? There was not supposed to be anything. And Saul answers, he says, listen, hey, the people, not me, the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen because we're going to make a sacrifice to God. Is it, see, is, I know better. Isn't this a good thing? Instead of killing everything, we'll save the best and we'll make an offering to God. But that wasn't the instruction. That wasn't the invitation. And Samuel tells him as much. And he says, why then did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? And why did you rush upon the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? You missed listening to God because you were consumed with what you knew to be the better way, the right way, a more perfect way. I think this is another challenge that we face when we think that we know better than God. Sometimes it doesn't make sense the way that God calls us to do certain things. The invitations that God extends before us, how we're supposed to be in relationship with people, what this looks like to lead in this particular season or to respond to God's calling in our life in this moment. We think we can see a better workaround. Well, God, if, see, the reason God that that plan won't work is because if you do it this way, then you'll have... Saul tries this in this conversation with Samuel. Saul tries to give him his instruction. He says, listen, I did listen to the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission he sent me. But it's the people who took the spoil. It wasn't me. I mean, if you're not going to believe that making a sacrifice was a good thing, then don't blame me. Blame the people. And Samuel sees through this as well. He's like, listen, come on. I'm not going to buy that. He replies. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as listening to his voice? I think this is one of the challenges that we struggle when it comes to the pride and the way that it gets in the way of accepting and living into the invitation that God has for us is we point to all the sacrifices, all of the ways that we can point to good fruit or good intentions behind the things that we've done that have maybe deviated from what God is calling us to do. And Samuel says, first and foremost, God asks us to listen, to listen to his voice, to begin to discern what he's doing not taking over and taking control and doing things in a way that seem good and right to us, but to listen and to do it the way that God's called us to. And then he begins to describe the severity of Saul's actions. And he says, for rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and pride like the evil of idolatry. He names kind of this obstacle that Saul is wrestling with. And as, you know, if we had more time to dig into the story of Saul and the book of Samuel, what we see is this is a bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Saul's life. Kind of Saul's reign as king continues to devolve and devolve and devolve. First, it starts with inexperience, and then it begins to let pride creep in and take over. And eventually, it moves him to a place of kind of anxiety and paranoia and fear. And eventually, what we see at the end of the book of Samuel is that Saul is kind of consulting witches to try to find answers because God has stopped speaking to Saul because Saul has stopped listening to God. And so when Samuel says rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, he's kind of alluding to what will eventually happen in Saul's life. And so this is kind of the heavy blow that Samuel lays before Saul's feet. He says, because you have not listened to the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Because you're so consumed with the ways that you know to do it, Refusing to listen, God's going to stop working through you. 
he's going to find a new tool, a new instrument, extend a new invitation. And this is what happens in the book of Samuel. This is the moment that God calls David. Many of you kind of know the stories of King David and the way that he kind of rose to prominence, defeating Goliath and kind of, kind of navigating, becoming the new king while Saul was still king. And what we see happen is there starts to be this kind of really tenuous and kind of difficult relationship between Saul, who's still in power, but God's not working through him anymore, and David, who God is using and working through, but he doesn't quite have the title of king yet. And this leads us into the last obstacle that we experience when we kind of are wrestling to hear God's voice. And this is the obstacle of fear. There's so many ways that this manifests in our life. You know, beyond the uncertainty of an experience, kind of beyond our pride, it's not trusting God, not listening to God's voice, becoming fearful of all of the ways that we might be impacted or this might not work or all of the things that could happen to us, the harm that might befall us. This is what we see happen to Saul. Saul starts to see the way that God is trying to work through David and becomes jealous, fearful of what that means for Saul. And so what we have is after this major battle, you have these people who are kind of writing these songs about kind of the feats of these leaders in the army. And so this group of women are kind of rushing out to meet kind of the returning heroes and they're singing these songs and this is the song. It says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And upon hearing this song, Saul gets angry. He's like, well, wait a minute. How come David's slain tens of thousands of, and I've only slain thousands? People aren't giving me my due and my credit. You know, you can still see kind of the ways that pride has kind of, you know, ensnared his heart. And so he says that Saul was very angry and this refrain displeased him greatly. And he says, they have credited David with his tens of thousands, but me with only my thousands. What more can he get but my kingdom? Saul becomes fearful that eventually David's going to take the thing that Saul covets most, not his relationship with God, but his kingdom, his position, his power, his seat, his throne. Saul is allowing fear to serve as this major obstacle. He's no longer listening to God's voice. He's consumed with all that he might lose in the process. I think we run into this as well. Following God in this day and age and in our community and culture, when you truly follow not just in name, but in lifestyle and values and actions and choices. It will cause you to make choices that ostracize you from kind of where the group is going. It will cause you at times to stand out and to stand apart and to swim upstream. We see this from middle school all the way into adulthood. Oftentimes the cool, the popular, the consensus opinion is not consistent with the way that God is calling his people to live and to act, the choices that he's calling us to make, the values he's asking for us to choose and prioritize. God has always called his people to stand out, to be set apart, to live differently. But it's easy to think, well, what will happen, though, if I do that? What will happen if I accept this invitation and live this way? What will happen to my kingdom We all have our own kingdoms, big or small. We have these things we want to covet and protect and hold on to. And sometimes God is saying, I need you to let go of the fear and the insecurity of what might happen to your kingdom and to trust me. 
This is what Saul fails to be able to do. And so later in the story of Saul and David, what you see happen is Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and off to battle. And Saul's story continues to devolve and devolve and devolve and eventually kind of culminates with Saul kind of falling on his own sword in kind of humiliation and, you know, in death. And I think that these obstacles that we see Saul run into are the same ones that stand in our way. It's not because necessarily we've done something wrong, but these are just some of the things that serve as barriers to listening to God's voice. And so in response to these three obstacles, there are a couple of things that I want to leave you with, and then we'll close in prayer. But if these are the obstacles and experience pride and fear, then these perhaps are the tools that help us continue to listen to God's voice on a day-to-day basis. Silence and solitude, scripture, and community. Because again, what we've said from the beginning is calling is not this one-time event. It's not this one-time moment, but is this daily habit, this daily routine of listening to the ways that God is speaking in your life, the ways that God is inviting you to participate in his work from little small acts of kindness to big and larger things, maybe total changes of career, whatever it is, and all of the different steps and seasons in between. But these obstacles come up time and time again. And so we have to have habits and disciplines in our life that allow us to reconnect and to tune back in so that we can hear God in a consistent way. Silence and solitude we talk about often. If you're not making time to sit, to pray, to reflect, to listen, it's going to be really hard to hear God's invitation in your life. And I know that there's always a reason why it's not feasible for this season or this time period. I'm not saying you have to do it first thing in the morning, but five minutes a day even, just to turn off the devices before you get out of your car, in the shower, wherever it may be, how do you carve out and protect time to really begin to just sit in silence and to listen to maybe what God is saying to you? Another scripture As we read these stories, we see the way that God has been at work in people's lives, and so it gives us indications and clues about how God may be inviting us to do something similar. Then the last is community. This is why we're always trying to encourage you to take a next step here at the Grove, because we know that it's in Christian community that we're able to sense and discern the way that God is at work in our life. In the Quaker community, they have this really cool thing called the Clearness Committee. So if you're struggling to make a decision and wanting to know maybe how to discern God's will and God's invitation in your life, what you should do or shouldn't do or what step to take, you invite a group of close people, close friends, and they spend time in prayer and discernment and worshiping together. And then they give kind of the person who's seeking clarity time to kind of talk through kind of all of the things that they're sensing and they're feeling. And then the group, this committee, responds with kind of introspective and probing questions um, meant to give space to the person seeking clarity, opportunity for further reflection. They don't try to share opinions. They're not trying to guide or lead. They're just asking open-ended questions that allow for further reflection. And then the last is they kind of prayfully, prayerfully discern how it is that the larger community can support this person as they continue to navigate what to do or what not to do or when to wait or when to make a different choice in terms of how they live into their ministry. 
This is why community here at church is so important, why we put these things in your bulletin. It's not because we have, you know, some attendance metric that we're trying to hit independent of your growth and development. No, it's because we believe that this is what it looks like. This is why we need each other, so that we as a group, as a community of people, can lean on one another to ask the questions, to reflect, to mirror back to each other about ways that God is at work in our life, in our world. Because on our own, on an island, trying to figure it out by ourselves is too easy to run into these obstacles. But together, God has equipped us to encourage, to guide, to mold, to shape, and to walk in solidarity into the work that he's called all of us to. And that's my prayer for us as the church, that we would be a community that's willing to discern and to wrestle with the ways that God is inviting us to join him in the work that he's doing in the world, and that we would come alongside each other to help make that so in each of our lives. So let me pray for our time. We'll invite the band to come out and the ushers to come forward as we get ready to take up our offering. Gracious God, we thank you for the ways that you have kind of awakened us to the reality of your calling in our life. God, sometimes we would love more clarity, more certainty, but ultimately, God, we ask that you help us surrender, to begin to trust that you are inviting us into some significant work, some way to partner with you in our day-to-day lives, in these seasons, in these moments in our life. God, help us to see the ways that you are at work, and the ways that we can partner with you. God, encourage us to avoid the obstacles and to lean into the ways that we can hear your voice clearer and more consistently day in and day out. God, we love you. We're grateful for the ways that you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen.